So, over the last uh, few months, we've been running through Genesis. We haven't been going verse by verse or even chapter by chapter, but hopefully by the end of this, you've gotten a good summary of what the story is all about. We started with uh, creation, uh, the fall, and then Noah, and on to Abraham, and Isaac, and then a couple weeks with Jacob, and now we are at Joseph. Uh, character that I'm particular fond, particularly fond of and feel closeness to, uh, Jacob's son, Abraham's uh, great-grandson. So before we jump into the text, I just want to say this, that if, uh, if you haven't read through Genesis before, I get it, it's a big book, uh, and not all of it is super interesting, uh, but important. Um, but if you if you have no interest in even reading through Genesis, I hope that you'll change your mind. But even if that's you, my hope is, is that you would at least read through the second half of Genesis starting in verse 37 through 50. Like, if you've never done it before and it feels too daunting, jump to the story of Joseph. I mean, this story of Joseph, it's the stuff of legends. It's been, it's been made into plays and movies because it's that. It's, it's not like the rest of uh, Genesis, which is sometimes confusing, maybe at times boring. Uh, no, this story is this. It, it's a short novel is what it is, and it's got so many great things in it. It's just this great story. As far as biblical stories, I'd put it in the top ten. Um, and I'm not just saying that because it's, he's, you know, I'm named after Joseph, uh, but it's just that good. So in November, before we get to Advent, before we get to Christmas, my challenge for you and to all of you who are listening is that you'll read the story of Joseph for the first time, for the hundredth time. Totally worth it. We're not going to be able to look at it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So I encourage you to read the whole thing. So with that, let's jump into the text. We're going to start at the beginning of Joseph's story. So if you have your Bible, you can go there. It's Genesis chapter 37. This is where it starts. So if you're going to read through it, you can start there. Um, But we're going to start with verse 1 of Genesis chapter 37. So here is what it says. Genesis 37, verse 1. The story of Joseph. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. This is where Joseph's story starts. One of the best stories in the Bible, and it starts by talking about his dad, Jacob. Jacob was living in the land of Canaan. He was lived there with his, where his father was. We at least he looked at the story of Jacob. If you remember, he left his hometown. He went and lived in a foreign land. He found a couple of women. He married them. Uh, it was more involved in that. But he, on his return, he meets his brother. There's this confrontation. We spent some time with this, if you've been following, in person or on the podcast. And they reconciled. And then we find out here that Jacob settled into his father's land, which is important because the story doesn't end there. This story is about how Jacob eventually leaves his father. Land. That's what we're setting up the story. It's a geographic story. But even more than that, this verse serves an important part here. We are told that the story we are about to read is actually all about Jacob. Quote, this is an account of Jacob's family. I'm going to pause there for a second. When I think of this story, I think of it as Joseph's story. And for good reason. Most of it follows Joseph's plot line. His follows Joseph as a person, as a character. But the biblical writer here, right at the start of Joseph's story, wants us to be not miss the point. The story might follow Joseph, but it's really about Jacob's family. It's about, jo- about Jacob. In fact, when the story ends, it says as much. Joseph talks to, about how they follow the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But he doesn't throw his name in there. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and Jacob. So we're introduced to two themes right at the first, first verse. First, it's a geographic story. 
starts in Canaan, but it's not going to end there. And most of the story is about how Israel is going to leave Canaan. And second theme that we're introduced to is this story is actually about Jacob's family, not Joseph. Here's why this matters. The entire biblical narrative ever since Abraham has been about one thing, God's promise, often referred to as a blessing. So when we start this story, there should be one question on our mind. If you haven't been paying attention, this is what you should be asking when we start this story. And it should be lingering in all of our minds as we read it. Who will Jacob give the blessing to? Think of this blessing or promise uh, from God as a, as a gift. Uh, today, uh, yesterday was Alyssa's birthday. Today is Ryan's birthday. So happy birthday to both of you. Um, but imagine it's a gift. It's, you know, wrapped and it's, you know, got maybe got a bow on it if you're, you're really intentional. Mine didn't have a bow on it for Alyssa, but, you know, whatever. Still a good present. God gave this present to Abraham. Abraham then gave it to Ishmael. Uh, we wanted to give it to Ishmael at one point, but he gave it to Isaac instead, and there was some conflict that was situated there. And then Isaac ends up giving it to Jacob instead of Esau. There was some trickery involved, and there's a lot of conflict we looked at between Jacob and Esau because of that. Now, Jacob has this gift, this blessing, this promise, and the question we should all be asking is, who is he going to give it to? Which one of his sons will get it? I want you to hold on to that question. That's what this story ends up being about. Jacob's family. In other words, who will get this blessing? Let's go on to verse 2. So this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph. We're introduced to Joseph, finally. A young man of 17. He's a teenager. You should expect him to act like a teenager. He certainly does in this story. Was tending the flocks of his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, and his, some of his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So we're introduced to Joseph. And we can all assume at this point that he's going to get the blessing. We know the story's about Joseph, but wait for it. We learn a few things first, right away. First, he's a teenager. He's out caring for his family's flocks and his brothers, uh, with his brothers, and he comes back and he pulls his father aside and, and, and he tells his dad all the things that his brothers were doing wrong. Now, what did he say? I don't know. Maybe he talked about how they were shepherding the wrong way or how they treated their wives who were with them. And we don't know. But did they actually deserve this bad report? We don't know that either. He's a teenager. It's just as likely that they did nothing wrong, and he's just being a teenager. But we learned something about Joseph and his dad. They had the kind of relationship where he could pull his dad aside and tell him things that his brothers were doing wrong. We're already introduced to this idea that he had a special relationship with his dad, maybe even in the context of a healthy family, an inappropriate relationship with his dad, where he's at odds getting in between his dad and his brothers. Well, this isn't speculation. We see it in verse 3. Now Israel, remember that was his, Jacob's other name. He was given by God. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. So his dad uh, loved him more than others. So much so, that he gets this like priestly royal robe, a robe that you know would seal his love for his sons. I grew up in a family of seven kids. Uh, there was probably times where I was the special kid, got special treatment. I, I would imagine that most of my siblings would say there was a time where they were the special kid, got special treatment. Um, I'm here to say to you that this is the perfect recipe for family dysfunction. Jacob and Joseph are continuing the family tradition of jealousy and favoritism and dysfunction, just like the father's. It's a family business, and it works. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. 
The great irony of a father's affection is that when a father loves one son more than the others, the brothers end up hating the son instead of the father, who's clearly at fault here. Now, we're only four verses into the story, and here's what we have. We have stepbrothers divided between their father based on when they were born and who they belong to and which mother they belong to, and there's already a hierarchy forming, and there's secret conversations and rivalry and betrayal and unhealthy love from a father to a son and ill-conceived gifts of passion and hatred and shunning, and we're on verse 4. And it's only going to get better from here. Verse 5. Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers, they hated him all the more. On top of all that we've already seen, Joseph has this dream. And it implies that even more than... uh, 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 This dream inspires even more hatred because it's not just any dream. Verse 6, it says this. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. He has a dream where his brothers bowed down to him. Now, I'm reading this as just one of five uh, brothers, uh, one of seven kids, one of five brothers. And let me just say, if I ever had a dream like that, I would not share it with my brothers i got to be honest, I'm not sure what Joseph expected would come from this, uh, but here's what happens. Verse 8, it says, his brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more. The number of times the story says they hated him all the more. I mean, it just, it just, it just hate upon hate keeps piling up. And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Now, hold on to that. It wasn't just because of his dream that they hated him but what he said about it. Just hold on to that. This is what you would expect. Surely uh, Joseph should have known it if he was smart enough, and, uh, but, he, but uh, he's the kind of kid who tattles on his brothers, so he maybe even did this on purpose. And what we do know is that um, his brothers get mad and he doesn't stop. Verse 9, he says, Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, pause for a second. During this time, it was believed that dreams like this were from God, not some sort of processing of our subconscious. So we have to read it as it was intended, um, as it was written. This dream is from God, not because Joseph had some sort of dreams of grandeur. It's from God, but even though it's from God, I'm I'm still not sure it makes sense to share it with those who would be most impacted by this. But then again, he is 17. He tells them, well, this time his dad steps in. Because in this dream, it's not just his brothers bowing down. It's the sun and the moon. And everyone just assumes that means his, his parents, his mom and his dad. Verse 10, and that's what his dad thinks. When, his, when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him. The dad who loves him special, like he's gone too far. And he said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? So even with his dad, it's like, okay, Joseph, you've gone too far here. But his, his dad still listens. Verse 11, it says this. His brothers were jealous of him. That hatred turned and morphed into je- just straight-up jealousy. But his father kept the matter in mind. A similar phrasing that you would see in the Christmas story where Mary pondered these things. He kept the matter in mind. He's thinking about it. He's wrestling with it. 
His father wasn't happy with the dream, but at least he, he knew it could mean something, and so he pondered onto it. Now, we all know where this is headed, and you maybe even know the story. Joseph's brothers decide to get rid of him. In the great biblical tradition of patriarchs, in the tradition of Cain and Abel and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Esau, each are either cast out or cast down. And his brothers have a lot to do the same. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll find that they uh, think about killing him. They assume that if they kill Joseph, they can kill Joseph's dreams. But Joseph ends up getting sold into slavery, and his dad is told that he's dead. And then the story continues as Joseph is a slave in Egypt. We're not going to look at that today. Instead, I want to focus on the dreams. What is the purpose of Joseph's dreams? Well, one thing we can say for sure is this. They kind of come true. In the end, Joseph becomes a great ruler in Egypt. He's sold into slavery, but over time he works up. Every, every opportunity, every, every position in life as a slave, he becomes a head slave in a prison. He, he works up and becomes like a head prisoner. Um, and, and he keeps becoming a ruler. He keeps becoming a leader. Like he can't avoid not leading. And eventually he's put in second command over all of Egypt. And we'll look at parts of that story in two weeks. But all of that to say, he does become a ruler, and in a way, even above his entire family. This, they, they become true, the dreams become true, but only sort of. His brothers do end up bowing before him, even though they, they don't know who he is when they do. But his father never bows. When they meet him, they end up weeping and hugging and kissing. You can read that in Genesis 46, verse 29. So it mostly comes true. Minus the part that Jacob protested, which is maybe interesting. But here's the thing that is never, that's even more interesting to me. Joseph's dreams become the catalyst for making them come true. Like some kind of strange, self-fulfilling prophecy. You see, Joseph had these dreams. He tells his family about them, and that's what pushes them over the edge. They sell him as a slave, which takes him to Egypt, where eventually the dreams become true. Now, I don't think God gave Joseph the dreams, knowing that they would, he would brag about them, and then his brothers would murder him or try to, and then you know he would become a slave and accomplish his purposes. I don't think God was using the arrogance of Joseph and the jealousy of his brothers to accomplish, like that was God's original plan. I think God used those things to accomplish God's purposes, but I don't think that's what God's original plan was. Joseph explains this better than, than anyone. Joseph, at the end of the story, says to his brothers, which in a lot of ways is a good summary of the entire book, reaching all the way back to the fall. Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I don't think God wanted Joseph to be sold as a slave, but the fact that he was didn't keep God's will from happening. God doesn't want bad things to happen, but, but when they do, God can still take it and make something really good out of it. And I think that's important to keep in mind. So I don't think God gave Joseph these dreams so that a series of events would fall into motion. I think God gave Joseph these dreams for a different reason. Dreams are a theme in Joseph's story. They appear right at the beginning, but they show up in two other places. Here, Joseph is having the dreams, and he just blurts them out, causing all kinds of tension in his family and problems. But in two other stories, Joseph actually gets to hear about other people's dreams. First is in Egypt. He ends up in prison. While in prison, he hears two dreams from two different people. 
Both are confused by the meaning of the dream, and Joseph, through the Spirit of God, interprets them. Then because of that incident, he's invited to do the same for Pharaoh. The Pharaoh keeps having this same dream, can't figure out what it means, and Joseph is asked to interpret it. And he does. And the Pharaoh is so impressed that Joseph is put into leadership. From prison to leadership like that. Not because Joseph had a dream when he was 17, but because he learned how to correctly interpret dreams. Somewhere along the line, Joseph learned this lesson. And it's the point I want to make today more than probably any other. And ultimately, I think the point of that opening story of Joseph's story. Dreams left uninterpreted or misinterpreted, can do more harm than good. In other words, dreams are only as good as their interpretation. You see this throughout Joseph's story. I think God gave Joseph these dreams when he was young because he needed to learn that that this important lesson, something that I think remains important today. Um, Something that, if not learned, can cause a lot of trouble and hatred and, and jealousy and violence that we see similar to Joseph and his brothers. Joseph needed to learn how to interpret dreams. And I'll take it one step further. Dreams here are a placeholder for something bigger. Dreams here are just one way that God reveals God's will to God's people. In Joseph's story, God chooses dreams. Chosen method in this story for God communicating. But the principle extends beyond dreams. Anytime God reveals something, any word from God needs interpretation. So I'm going to say something radical, and it might make some of us uncomfortable. I would suggest that any word from God can often, not always, but often, be harmful if misinterpreted or uninterpreted. That God's word is often, not always, but often only as helpful as the interpretation. Think about it. Take scripture. One of the major ways God speaks to us today, probably far more often than dreams, uh, in our context anyways, Scripture itself makes it clear that it can be manipulated and misused and misinterpreted. 2 Peter 3.16 says it like this. Peter, speaking of Paul's writing, said, His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. 2 Peter 3.16. Unstable people take the scriptures and distort them. And it's destructive. Misinterpreted words from God can be destructive. Or consider speaking in tongues. Many still practice this today. It was popular in at least one of the churches in uh, the New Testament. The Corinthians loved speaking in tongues. It was their favorite thing. um, They loved so much Paul had to say, you need to chill out about speaking in tongues. But he says more than that. He says, you know, just like dreams in Joseph's story, he says this, 1 Corinthians 14, 13. He says, for this reason, the one who speaks in tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. Speaking in tongues was sort of like heavenly language. You could talk to God. God would talk to you. You'd feel things. You'd hear things. And Paul's like, no, no, it's only good if you, if you interpret it. He goes on in verse 19. He says, in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let me paraphrase. I'd rather speak five words that told us what we should be doing with our lives than 10,000 words that don't make any sense. I'd rather be able to give a simple instruction to people and, you know, just having a holy experience. God's heavenly language is only good if it's practical. Same with scripture, same with dreams. I believe God still speaks today. I hope I'm, I'm, hoping the company, hope I'm in the company of people who believe that. I think God can still speak through dreams even and visions. I feel at times God speaks to me. I don't think I'm crazy. Um, I, not audibly usually or ever, but in spiritual impressions might be one way to put it. And feelings that I get. 
in quiet moments where I pray and I try to sense God's presence. And in an awesome, many, often, if not always, when, when I'm reading through Scripture. But I know from Joseph's story that the most important part of any revelation, whether it's divine biblical revelation or something more general, is what we do with it. What does it mean? How do we understand it? What should I do now because of it? How can this be understood? When we read Joseph's story, he has these dreams, bold dreams, and he just throws them out there. He doesn't think about what they mean. He doesn't wrestle with the consequences. He doesn't act wisely. But Joseph learns. Later in life, he becomes this great example of what it means to interpret God's voice in our lives. Uh, He's called on by Pharaoh. He's put in leadership because of his ability to understand what God is saying to people to make it real and practical. So I want to spend, just as we we look at this, I want to spend just a couple of lessons from later in Joseph's life, what he learns about the value of understanding and interpreting what God might be saying. Um, there's, there's much to learn from him. Uh, and there's, there, there's some things you can learn from him in that first story, mostly what not to do. You know, that God's word is dangerous. You should probably spend some time with it. You probably shouldn't blurt it out. You, you, you shouldn't use it to boost your own arrogance or to try to make your brothers jealous. All of these are th- things that we do with things that we hear from God. Christians have been guilty of this, and people of faith have been guilty of this. You shouldn't do it. What Joseph reveals later in life is a good example. So let's jump to one of the other two dream stories and compare the lessons back to the first. The next dream story later in life is Genesis chapter 40. Joseph's in prison. He's risen in leadership in prison because that's what he does, um, serving the prison guards. And he's even given two prisoners then to oversee. And, and the morning after they arrive, here's what happens. Verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 6, it just says, When Joseph came to them in the morning... He saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in prison, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your face downcast today? Well, I'm just like, I don't understand this question. I'm like, they're in prison. That's, that's why. But um, I'm not writing this story. Here's what they say. Verse 8. They said, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell them to me. So on top of being in prison, they, they feel that God is trying to speak to them, these two, these two uh, pharaoh officials that are in prison, and, and th- there's no one to make sense of it. And Joseph says, if God is trying to speak to you, then God alone can give the explanation. God isn't just the giver of dreams. God is the giver of the interpretations of dreams. God alone can make sense of them. Think back to the original story, the one where Joseph is arrogant with his brothers. Joseph shared his dreams because he assumed the interpretation was clear. He would be a leader and his brothers would bow down. And so he tells them, and they, they all pick up on the face value meaning of it, debating with them. And he's like, are we going to really bow down to you, Joseph? In that story, everyone just assumed they understood exactly what this dream meant. But it's never as simple as that. Imagine if they really knew what it meant, that a famine was coming. One that could take the life of every member of their family, of their wives, of their children, of their grandchildren. And if something wasn't done, they would all die. But God had found a way. God would place one of their brothers, Joseph, in a place of favor with Egypt. And then because of that, they would survive this famine. Imagine if they understood that bigger picture. God gave Joseph a dream, but but he would later learn in life that God alone can help us understand really what that means, why it matters, and how it's going to play out. Skip ahead in the story. The next couple of verses, the guy tells him the dream. Joseph interprets it. It's good news. This guy is going to get out of prison, according to this dream. 
So the second guy hurries and he tells Joseph the dream. He's like, man, I'm hoping for a similar outcome. Here's the interpretation Joseph gives him, verse 19. In three days, Joseph will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. One of my goals in life is never have this prophecy speaking over me. You are going to die, Joseph tells this guy. The other guy is going to get his job back. You are going to be executed. Important lesson here. Here's the thing with God's messages. They aren't always good news. Sometimes I think we don't even hear what God is saying because we won't listen to anything but good news. And God might be trying to tell us something hard, and we've already shut ourselves off to that. I won't listen to it. Don't believe it. God's message to us now and throughout Scripture isn't always good. Sometimes it's bad news. But don't get me wrong, it's not always bad either. And, and, and some of us might lean towards trying to interpret everything to make it sound better than it is, and others of us might in, try to interpret everything to make it sound worse than it is. Usually it's a little bit of both. While we were yet sinners. Well, that's hard to hear. I don't like the word sinners. It triggers me, you know. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, well, that is good news. Sometimes you have to hear the hard stuff alongside the good stuff. God's word for us is not always going to be good news or bad news, There's, but it's always going to be necessary news. Think back to Joseph's original dreams. Imagine if he applied this principle. When he told his brothers that he's going to be a ruler and they're going to bow down to him, he's thrilled. You can tell it. He's like kind of bragging. He's, he's kind of showing off a little bit. But if he had stopped and prayed and maybe asked God for just a little bit more interpretation, is it possible that he would have learned that it wouldn't be all good? I mean, he would become a ruler, but only after spending his entire life as a slave and a prisoner. He didn't wait long enough to hear that part of the dream. I think God wants good things for us, but, but things will happen. And we can't pretend that they don't. Hard things are going to happen. We can't avoid the hard stuff. And no matter what you think you deserve in life, life is going to be hard at times. I don't think God causes it. I do believe God wants to use it for good. And I think it's unwise to look at Scripture or your prayer life or your relationship with God and always try to bend it towards the good or always try to bend it towards the bad. Maybe that means trying to interpret scripture passage to make it sound nicer, or maybe it means, you know, trying to interpret it and make it sound harder. I think scripture is complicated, and there's, there's good news. There's a lot of good news. I think good news wins in the end, uh, but there's a lot of hard stuff too. And part of learning to apply God's word and to understand, to interpret, is listening to God in prayer, um, understanding God's will for your lives, and having the courage to acknowledge the hard things. I'm talking to you right now, and I guarantee you there's somebody who's listening who, ref who feels that they are not hearing anything from God because they refuse to hear the hard thing that God wants to tell them. I've been there. Like, God's not speaking to me. No, God actually is. You just, you've blocked out the hard stuff. You don't want to hear it. I'm not saying God's telling you you're going to get hung up on a tree and birds going to eat your flesh. So that's good news. But God might have something hard for you. Your life might be hard already. So as we read scripture and we pray and we look for God's will in our life, we need to ask these. What is God saying here that's, that challenges me? What's the hard thing here? 
And, and also, what is God tra- saying here that encourages me? What's the, gr- the good news? And I think scripture is riddled with both. So moving on, skip ahead. Joseph does such a good job of interpreting the, the guy's dreams that he gets his job. The guy gets his job back. He tells Pharaoh. He's invited to Pharaoh's court to do the same. Pharaoh has a set of dreams. He's overwhelmed by them. Joseph is asked to interpret them. The dreams have to do with this coming season of plenty and this coming season of famine. And Joseph explains all this to Pharaoh, the good and the bad. He doesn't soften the bad. He doesn't try to ignore the good. He lays it all out. And then he does something interesting. He says this, all of this is going to happen. He says, it's going to happen. So, Genesis 41, verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. This is Joseph speaking. It's like, you, you, ever, you ever created a job that you're hoping they'd hire you for? <laughs> like, that's, that's what he's doing here. He's like, Pharaoh should really select somebody who's really good at discerning and interpreting things and put them in charge of all of this. Joseph tells him the dream, and then without missing a beat, he tells Pharaoh what to do with the dream. He goes on to give him a five-point plan on how to deal with the oncoming famine. I mean, step-by-step plan on how to deal with everything the Pharaoh had been warned about. And so we learn one more principle in understanding God's word to us. Interpretation often means some kind of action plan. There's a chance that it has, there's something to do about it, that, that we have to answer the question, what now? What do we do with this new information? I cannot think of a time when God shows up and speaks to someone. The expectation is that they continue just as they are. Usually when God shows up, and we, you know, when we study scripture or we engage God in prayer, it produces change. And so good interpretation or wise leaders in general can sense where things are headed and what we should do about it. Good interpretation can predict how it's going to play out and what we do next. Think about, go back to that first dream Joseph has. He didn't think about what would happen next. If he had, he could have seen what was coming. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to assume that telling your brothers that they're going to bow to you because God told you that much is going to produce the results that they did. Didn't he hear or sense, you know, what had happened with his uncle and his dad or his grandfather and his brother or, or even his great-grandfather? Uh, he, he could have guessed what would happen next, but he wasn't worried about the future. He's 17, so he wasn't, but, but he wasn't thinking about the impact that it would have. So I want to pause and talk to anyone here who, who wants to be a leader. If you want to be a leader in your home, in your work, in church, listen. You don't become a leader because you stand up and tell everyone that you're going to be a leader. You don't become a leader even by standing up and telling everyone that God said I'm going to be a leader. That doesn't even make, like God could be the person who says you're going to be a leader and just standing up and telling everyone that like Joseph did doesn't make you a leader. Joseph didn't become a leader because he had a dream. Joseph actually became a leader because he could interpret dreams. He wasn't a leader before that. He was just a spoiled little kid who bothered his brothers. In fact, I will go one step further. Joseph didn't become a leader because he had a dream and told everyone about it. He became a leader when he learned how to interpret other people's dreams. When he learned to listen to God on the behalf of other people. When he was brave enough to face the good and the bad and communicate to other people. When he could see where things were headed and make a plan and execute it on the behalf of not himself, but other people. I wonder how the story of Joseph would have been different if Joseph would have applied these, you know, lessons to the first set of dreams. 
I know like all of us looking back when we were younger, we can always wish we handled it better, right? It's like, oh man, if I would have known what I know now back when I was 17, uh, I would have done a, a number of things differently. Um, but the important thing for him and for us is that he learns. And that's what's most important. So the question still remains. Do you remember the question I asked at the beginning? Who is going to receive Jacob's blessing? Who will inherit God's promise? Who's next in line? Well, everything is still pointing to Joseph. Um, he ends up being really kind of in the end a great candidate. So will it be him? Well, if you want to find that out and you're not reading the book, <laughs> you're going to join us in two weeks. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks. Um, Lord, there's uh, a lot that you have to say to us. The scriptures are filled with uh, beautiful and at times difficult things. Lord, help us to be slow and patient and wise. And most of all, help us to shift from caring about only ourselves and what it means for us to caring about what it means to other people. Help us to be listeners. Help us to be able to discern and to interpret and to care about other people's dreams more than our own. But I ask that for myself. For all the leaders in our community, in the church, and in our world and in our nation, that they wouldn't be consumed with their own ambitions, their own visions of what could be great and how they will be great, but concerned with the dreams, the collective dreams of others and what you have to say. And that you're not just speaking to me, you're speaking to each of us. Help us to listen. Amen.